1: we're gonna jump across this. Do you trust me? And on the day I just went, and I was like, yeah. I don't. Oh no, I meant to, score for <laughs> Tom Cruise, you're Ethan Hunt, I'm Grace, where am I?
0: Hello and welcome to Love Lives, a podcast from The Independent, where I, Olivia Petter, will be speaking to different guests every week about the loves of their lives. Today, I am so excited to be speaking to Hollywood actress Hailey Atwell. She has starred in everything from Black Mirror to Howard's End to so much theater now her latest role takes her to another major franchise mission impossible in this latest film dead reckoning part one atwell plays grace against tom cruise's ethan hunt in some pretty serious action scenes i am so excited to ask her all about as well as hearing about the loves of her life so let's get started Hi Hayley, how are you? I'm
1: good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so
0: much for being here. Um, As I said in the introduction, so this is the seventh Mission Impossible film and it's such a huge franchise to be a part of. Tell us a little bit about your character, Grace, and how she fits into the plot.
1: Well, I think it helped to give context of how I came into this world of it. Um, About 10 years ago, I was doing a play called The Pride in the West End in London and Chris McQuarrie, the director and the writer of Mission Impossible came to see me and then afterwards came up and said, I want that thing that you do on stage. I don't know what the character is. I don't know what the story would be, but I want to work with you. And then six years later, he called me and said, we are looking for, we're looking for an actor uh, for Mission Impossible. And the way that they worked, both him and Tom, was that they don't have a character or a story in place that they're looking for someone to fit into. They find the actor they want to work with who is interested in that their particular unique process and thinks they too could thrive in that kind of experience and then they build a character with that person so when i started you know for the longest time i didn't have a character name Um, i was trying lots of different sort of things because for me the it, it it was so important to me that she wasn't going to be one thing Mm -hmm. that she wasn't archetypal so she wasn't going to be the femme fatale the ice queen the ingenue the victim the damsel whatever it is and and so there wasn't a sense of sort of over objectification or simplification of who she was and so well how how can i do that within a, a very specific genre and franchise like this the way i could do that was to try lots of different kinds of things and hopefully give them um enough creative choices where they could put together someone who just had a bit more nuance and so what we found was that she became therefore consistently inconsistent and so grace sort of comes in as an outsider she's very much a lone wolf and she's spontaneous and playful and doesn't realize the extent of the trouble that she's suddenly found herself in and so she has this hyper vigilance about her and There's moments of real levity in it. We were, you know, watching films like What's Up, Doc, and The Sting, and Paper Moon, and these 70s heist films that had sort of a playfulness to them, and a cat and mouse energy between the protagonists. But at the same time, I was going, it's my role as an actor to find, if I can, a way to explore an inner world that can land, so that despite the action, or the the fanatic energy, or the edge of your seat excitement and the incredible spectacle that these movies are. Can I can I can I care about her enough mm. so that the audience want to follow what happens to her? And McHugh and Tom are so um they're so generous and specific with their their kind of care and support of me trying lots of different things. And so ultimately when you have someone who is a lone wolf, the the kind of the the psychological profile that I built of her was that she was someone who you know, if we are hyper-independent and hyper-vigilant as adults, something's happened in our formative years where we are should be wired for connection and wired for attachment and belonging to our family, our tribe or social group. And if that's been interrupted in some way by a traumatic experience, then it's shut her down from feeling that she could ever rely or trust anyone. And so therein lies her sense of survival, her opportunist kind of thief mentality, and it gives her somewhere then to grow as a person as she, obviously, because Mission is so much about sort of friendship as a major theme. So it's how does someone like Grace trust or even want or know that that friendship is something that is, is safe for her?
0: She is such a rich character. And I think it's so important, like you said, to move away from, you know, the aforementioned tropes that you said in this in this particular action genre, because for so long, it's probably the genre where women women are pigeonholed the most, I imagine, because action films have been so traditionally seen as masculine films.
1: Yeah. And I think I'm certainly kind of seeing a trend where we've moved away from the damsel, the, the woman to be saved, and more into action movies that involve women who are badass or strong, which, again, is reductive. It might be seen as progressive because of what came before and therefore feels like a change. And it's, that is, it's great. But I think, you know, human beings, men or male or female or however one identifies is not ever one thing. And so can you have an action star um, in a mainstream movie that's ultimate goal is to absolutely serve and entertain the audience? That's what this film is. And within that, can you have someone that is full of self-assurance and and self-doubt that she is really competent and then at times totally reckless that she doesn't know what she's doing is totally out of control but then she is very brave and kind of clear about what her next move is going to be and those things can coexist in in a totally plausible arc of a character in any sort of genre of movie and that's what I'm always sort of looking forward to try and bringing and you know, to the extent to which I can have any sort of creative control, those conversations behind the camera with McHugh, with um, Tom and with Eddie Hamilton, the editor, are very much sort of in keeping with, can we, can we make sure that we're seeing lots of different bits of who she is yeah. rather than the one thing that we feel like she, she is as a one trick pony. And they are um, they are so sort of astute to that and sensitive to it and excited by that really it's a process of if you come in every day with with new things to offer and you're creative and productive as opposed to going in complaining going like well she's i want i don't want her to be like that or she's only one thing you've got to offer something else and if you're offering something that is actually active then there's a chance to change the representation of the character or the representation of 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 a type of person uh, Mm. in general
0: and talk to me about the physicality of taking on a role like this, because obviously there is so much action. There's so much stunt work involved. And I know you've done the, your own stunts, which is so cool. Um, talk to us a bit about how you went about kind of physically preparing for the role and and then what it was like to, to do all that stunt work on set.
1: So the screen test also involved a sort of a stunt test mm-hmm. to see sort of how quick I was able to learn unarmed combat or fight choreography. And that was under the... the um, the guidance and the, the teaching of Wade Eastwood, who is world-class stunt coordinator, professional race car driver, has worked with Tom for many, many years, loads of blockbuster films, and has a, a stunt team that involve world-class kickboxing champions, um, Olympic athletes, mixed martial arts ex- experts. And so he's looking at sort of how I move through space and how I move with the camera in terms of my own personal style, coordination, strengths. And he's looking in the test of how if I worked with him and his team, what could we build physically that would fit into this world? Mm -hmm. And that also would potentially offer something new, a different kind of style um, that Grace would bring. And then Tom and Macquarie watched it as well, the kind of final piece we put together. And then when I got the role, it was five months of full-time training. Mm -hmm. So the morning and the afternoon, the afternoon I go to the studio and we look at knife work we do lots of drills. We look at the basics of various disciplines of martial arts to see where my natural or my enjoyment was. You know, Tom would say, if you don't want to do it, like if you don't enjoy it, you aren't, you're not you're not going to be able to actually progress yeah. and learn this. You've got to find the thing that makes you feel like it's you're going to come alive with it because we're going to pick that up, up on screen. And drifting became a thing very quickly. So drifting, I, I'm instinctive with it. So forgive me, I can't explain theoretically what it is, but. You're you're basically swinging the ass of the car out behind you as you're turning, so you can you can do what they call donuts and kind oh, of like wow. turn the car um, on on front wheels, and um, it's all kind of the, the screeching that you see in those action car movies. Require you to kind of drift is is the right. kind of the term that they use. So I was learning how to do that, and then I was also discovering that I could learn a fight piece choreography faster if I had props in my hands. It was, it was weird. And I, I think it comes from background in theater and the use of props. You know, I love the fact that, you know, the way that I would pick up that glass of water and drink it would convey to you what I thought about you if I was hiding a secret, my emotional state. You know, props for me are an extension of the subtext or the what's going on for the character. They can be very useful and they can give you something to do that's active. And so if I was given a knife or if I was given an object, I just felt that I could I could do the, the the fight a lot quicker with a lot more dynamism. So we started to then weave those into the fight, the fights that we would then use in the film. And because we wanted her to be an origin story and because she was an opportunist, we thought, right, she's made things up as she's gone along. She's learned on the job. So she's not slick and polished. You see her kind of become quite scrappy. You know, she's not. she's not sort of full of the kind of the sexy moves that make her look very cool she is fighting for her life and then also that means that you're after all the training you're coming in making creative choices within performance so we could I could do one where I'm going oh we can make her look more reckless or we can make her look braver than she feels or we can make her look like she doesn't know what's going to happen next or if she's going to be able to survive this. And so you're adding different sort of nuance of performance in that. Yeah,
0: because I was going to say it goes back to your earlier point about it being less reductive for the character if she's not as slick with all of the kind of combat. Because I'm just thinking of like Charlie's Angels, for example, you know, the original one when their, their combat scenes in that, they're so finely polished and they're so kind of slick and chic. And it's, it's not well it's not realistic but also it, it it kind of goes back to that point of like these are just three badass women but it's another trope it's another kind of way of pigeonholing i suppose
1: i think i mean there's there's certainly within the arts you know there's there's room for everything yeah. but you know i'm i i thought you know if there's something that's different maybe what i could bring with the experience that i have or the interests that i have which is to try and root to anything that I do in an emotional truth or create a psychological profile so even if it's my own secret I know what her wound is her core wound is or what her obstacle and her great want is and once I've sort of worked that out then it starts to inform the choices I'm making physically or my even the the way that I'm improvising with Tom when we're in the car and the he's with me and he's throwing out lines of dialogue as I'm drifting while he's in the passenger seat and he's handcuffed to me. And I'm like, we're trying ones where Grace is really reluctant to follow his direction because she doesn't know who this guy is. She's trying to get away from him. But also she knows that he probably is, he knows a bit more about driving than she does. So there's a kind of comedic element to, to that, which also comes from, again, her resistance to just do whatever this person is telling her to do. Mm. And she's always kind of fighting for her own agency in it. Um Which, you know, for me, therein lies the drama. You know, yeah. everything's going to have to create suspense and tension and conflict in a movie um for it to, to be interesting to mm. watch.
0: And did you ever have kind of situations where you're doing these crazy stunts and, you know, you feel, I guess, unsafe? I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people around you to make sure that that doesn't happen. But... Is that, were there any moments where you kind of felt like, oh God, I don't know what's gonna happen in this situation?
1: (laughs) I never felt, and it's, it's so strange to say this, I never felt unsafe and I never felt truly scared because first of all, Tom is so, he's so skilled and disciplined. He's so brilliant at what he does as a stuntman, as an athlete, as well as a producer. But part of that is that he is like a, he's like a mother hen. He clucks around everyone else and makes sure he's like, Are you okay, what do you need? And also has the world-class athletes and stunt people around you. But the, the motto for a lot of the stunts we were doing and the, a lot of the filming was don't be safe, be competent. Because if you're if you're studying something and you're seeing where the dangers are and where your sort of blind spots might be and where your weaknesses are and you're able to communicate that with teachers who understand what you're saying and, and can help you overcome certain things or break through certain blocks you're having and truly help you advance physically, then there's no time to be fearful of it. You know, fear can sort of paralyze and, and I can feel quite stagnant in whatever, you know, and, and it can mean that I'm resisting you know, the, the process. But because I also rationally knew that I, I was always going to be safe and then I could see that with the way that they would check a harness that I was wearing or that every time we got into a car, even if we'd been getting into the car, take after take after take, Tom would go, okay, let's check what's sticking out, what's sharp, what could hurt us, what where do we need um, something to buffer us if that that's a kind of a hard edge if we go around a corner. All of that meant that on action, I felt very free, which means that then I can choose as, as the actor to... Um, convey fear or excitement but I have the flexibility of not just having to play fear because I'm I'm learning how to control that in my body and there was there was a couple of moments that I never got I never got used to like there's um there's a train carriage sequence and there's a carriage that goes from horizontal to vertical in yeah, six seconds crazy. and on that steep sprint incline as it's going uh we're hanging uh and Tom jumps down onto my platform and he says to me we're gonna jump across this do you trust me and on the day i just went and and that's real i was like yeah. i don't oh no i meant to because you're tom Cruise, you're even hunt i'm grace where am i and and he was like yeah i love that I love that let's use that you know so you like okay and then when he turns his back to me to make the his initial jump and then i kind of hold on to him You know, those moments were real and you you kind of you're looking down and it's it's you're you're higher. (laughs) And if you were to fall, you're going to be swinging. You're attached to a harness, but you don't want to do that. And it's it's still terrifying. (laughs) You could still also hurt yourself bruises and scratches and banging around inside this this very long um, carriage. And so it's just the, the stuff, what it did to your, what it does to your body, you know, becomes, you, you be- can become very over-journalized. I remember at one point, Tom also looked at me and he was like, what's, what's wrong? And I was like, I don't even know, Tom. Don't even know what I don't <laughs> know, mate. I've checked out. No, I don't. And then he was just like, oh, you got, you got adrenal fatigue. Do you want some chocolate? And I was like, yes, hell yes. Is, that, that I know I want, that yeah. I know I need. And so it produces beautiful box of Incredible chocolate from seemingly thin air, uh, and then I was like, "Yeah, a little bit of a sugar rush, let's go." And there was this sort of a, there was a playfulness to it as well. Yeah. You know, it's there was it's it's really focused set. It's really intense, but that's why I worked so hard in the tr- in the initial training. You know, I came on board to this not going like, "Oh yeah, action! That sounds fun. I'll have a go." I was like, "This is serious, yeah. and this is you're working with really extraordinary people that really know their stuff." And if I follow their instruction, I will be able to to do this. But only if I, too, am mirroring that discipline and that attention to detail. Um, And and only then, once all that preparation is done, can I actually then have fun with it and play with it in the moment.
0: And can I ask you, how do you go about choosing the roles that you take on now? Because I think Grace is such an interesting, complex female character. And for years, you know, actresses have been offered, you know, very kind of limited roles, depending on their age, depending on how they look, depending on all sorts of things, and that is changing now. I think. Um, I mean, I, I'm. I don't know. Do you agree? Do you think that's changing?
1: Well, it's such a hard question to ask because it's such a general, big yeah. that involves a, a, a current affairs, a political, a, a cultural, a zeitgeisty. A it, so many complex conversations are part of that. I think I can only sort of from my. I can only speak from my lived experience and as i've had more experience in the industry what i've noticed is that if i'm focused on studying my own craft my own business um trusting my instincts that i have about filmmakers or people that i meet and, and and my intuition telling me is this is this a interesting filmmaker or writer or producer or director or actor to work with does this make me feel like i want to sit up a little bit taller and i'm kind of want to lean into this or does it make me go you know what i'm not really feeling that this is the right project for me those those things are within my control um and i've become i think more interested in Looking outside as opposed to feeling watched. You know, I was reading, rereading Ways of Seeing by John Berger the other day, and he was talking about female representation within, within you know various sort of art forms. And he was saying that the sort of generalization is that men watch and women watch themselves being watched. And I think that felt very, very true uh, f- for me in my twenties, for sure, in a public-facing industry where I was s- aware that I was not fully formed as an artist. Uh, And I was still working out what what my skills and strengths were, but also what I enjoyed doing and where I felt that I could hopefully build a career that would keep me doing this into my 80s if I wanted it. And so that, but you're sort of doing that in public. Mm -hmm. And what I found now is I'm not as interested in myself as I was. I'm more interested in what I'm reading, what I'm studying, performances that inspire me, um, the, surrounding myself with the people who don't want from me but want for me in terms of my own development as a person, as an actor, as someone who is, um, you know, coming onto set with uh, with something to contribute and to be of service. And from that, that's all that is within my control. And uh, funnily enough, more interesting th- things come my way because of it. More opportunities seem to be afforded to me. It's attracting that level of conversation, that level of interest in certain things is attracting that similar sort of wavelength Mm -hmm. in other people. And I think it's sort of so important to discern what is within my control. Where can I, in my own small way, make some kind of contribution that hopefully can have a positive, progressive impact on other women or other people in my life? And then what is not within my control and therefore not my business to engage in, you know, and where actually should I just be listening? to other people's experiences. It's
0: very easy to be taken for a
1: ride a little bit. And I always, I just always had that, I always loved what I did. So I was always passionate about theater and about language and the power of language and the power of storytelling. That to me was always so much more interesting than the politics or the, Seemingly cultural, you know, consciousness of a narrative that was like, "Isn't it bad that when we feel like this?" And I was like, I, "It's it, that that is too that is too big of a conversation for one individual to yeah. unpick." Um, and so I thought, well, you know, if someone doesn't take me seriously, I could take myself seriously. That's a start, isn't it? And if I was to be the one that was going to take myself seriously, what did I What did that mean? What did that look like? And that meant, you know. F- focusing my attention on the on the artists that inspired me studying, working hard, developing and cultivating a work ethic that was sustainable, but that also built, built within me a sense of self-esteem um, that was, you know, a healthy level of self-esteem um, and sort of also learning to let go of the rest. That was not something I could change. Um, and therefore, finding a peace in that too. You know, I think that you know it's like that brilliant, very famous book of Letters to a Young Poet by Wilke, where he says, you know, he's talking to this young poet. who says, you know, should I be a writer? And the young and the Wilke says, you know, paraphrasing obviously of the if if late at night you're by yourself and you ask yourself in the in your darkest moments, must I write? And if the answer is a resounding, clear yes. Mm. Then live live your life with that that understand that dedication to your craft, and and also that will be the overriding voice when you have moments where you feel that maybe there are people who are saying that you can't, or there's no evidence outside you that you you feel you could be or be seen as. That essentially sort of takes care of itself when you're asking yourself fundamentally, do I want a creative life? Will I accept any? Uh, any cost of that and that cost I'm talking about, you know, um, not being in control of it, if you get the job or not, rejection as and when it happens, projections onto you, of people thinking that they know who you are or in the public eye thinking that you are public property and therefore overfamiliar questions are perfectly appropriate. You know, how can you, is that OK for you? Can you develop a, a level of boundaries that keep you feeling that you're in integrity with your own value system and respectful? of their line of questioning but also knowing that there is a line there's all these you know all these things that happen as you I think you kind of go along
0: yeah I mean it's interesting what you're saying about the you're viewed as a commodity and sort of as a public figure there is this level of dehumanization completely
1: where people just forget you're a person (laughs) and just until I remind them and then they're like okay and that's my responsibility sometimes yeah you know I can't change people's initial projections or assumptions, but I can show up as who I am and engage with them as a human being. And then that often invites them to suddenly go, oh, hello, hi, (laughs) yeah, sorry, you know, let's have an authentic interaction. And that to me becomes really interesting because that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for connection to, I want to know what your actual story is. And I'm wanting to find out what makes you tick and how we relate as human beings. And, you know, what, what this experience of being in 2023 is, That for me is the point of, you know, the work that I do in creating art, you're creating some sense of structure that contains a lived experience that is otherwise in a constant state of flux and chaos that is very hard to uh, define, you know.
0: Yeah, well, I think fame is just a very strange concept, isn't it? Because it's very, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like it only means as much as
1: people want it to mean or people tell you it means. Yeah, it's an abstract thing. You know, you can have one day where no one knows or cares who you are and... The and other days where you know some people, you know, might take more of an interest in what you're doing because you've just finished a play and you come out the stage door, and it's you know the the, the thing. I mean, I, I think it's I I I'm so inspired by Tom Cruise's attitude towards fame because he wears it so lightly, and he knows exactly who he is, and so seeing him live out his life with the this such clear intentionality of He's going to make movies for the rest of his life. He loves to delight his audience and serve them and ne- never has this sense of like it has to be, you know, the an intellectual kind of, you know, uh, story that is very niche and only available to a particular kind of person who has, you know, read this many books. He's, mu- he's like, I want to entertain the masses because storytelling is at the heart of any community and the sort of the really the heart of civilization and so to have that collective experience of strangers in a dark room as the lights go down having a moment of real escapism and and being taken and transported somewhere is a really profound deep feeling when when it when it hits it and when it gets it right and i and i love that about him that he is focused on that so people can say what they want He'll just show up as a gentleman and be kind. And really, what people say about him is not his business. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's move on to talk about the loves of your life. Yeah, so, the current ones. There yes. are so many. <laughs> yeah. So for the first one, you've chosen some podcasts. So talk to me about why you enjoy podcasts, how you listen to them, when you listen to them.
1: Uh, all the time. It, 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 when I'm doing the cleaning, when I'm walking the dogs, sometimes... Um, Sometimes uh, when I'm lying down in bed, just winding down for the day or I'm in the bath or I just want that sort of like um, something that's kind of a light engagement that doesn't feel too much of long form. Um, And I might be in the mood for a bit of true crime or interviews. And so I love the sort of the diversity of, of all the kind of things that are available in a podcast. Um, so, you know, it's it, it just seems to be something that I kind of take with me wherever I go now. Mm.
0: And you mentioned um,
1: George the Poet's podcast. Yeah, I came across this a few years ago and it was the first podcast. It's called, Have You Heard George's Podcast? Which is a brilliant bit of marketing. Um, and it was the first podcast I heard where he'd taken the format and put it into an art form. So he uses poetry, spoken word, music, um, and storytelling to explore politics, sociology, um, current affairs, activism, social justice, and his own personal story. And so it's it's a, it feels like a, a beautiful kind of soundscape, a sound installation. And I thought, what a clever use of, of the podcast. I think it's the first podcast outside of the States that won the Peabody, and he such an intelligent guy from background, a family from Uganda, grew up in Northwest London, went to Cambridge and studied, I think, politics, psychology and sociology. Mm-hmm. And so combined all of that from the experience, um, from his experience as a, as a black man growing up in North London, and going, having access to a very privileged institution such as Cambridge, and so you can hear all of that in in the podcast. So it feels very personal to him, mm. but also a beautiful kind of soundscape love letter to his family, to his community, but also the 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 ways in which he wants to then use his platform to to have a much more sort of. Active role within in in the world right now. It's 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 just I think a stunning artistic achievement.
0: Yeah, I think it's such an interesting medium as well through which to achieve all of that because podcasts are such an intimate art form because you know you listen to them when you're on your own, you listen to them when you're doing very kind of you know slightly you know boring daily activities. (laughs) But it's a very and it's very it's very individual, just you and the other person. So I think it's a really interesting way of getting across something a bit more meaningful than mm. than necessary and you know watching something where you could be on your phone like halfway through or whatever yeah
1: you're right there is an intimacy I wonder if it's partly because it's it's often two people with a microphone in a room yeah. somewhere um so the, the you know the, the feeling of them recording it feels quite intimate mm. but it they've also it, it it uh it can be my backdrop to a road trip I did a road trip last summer and I was listening to um. The West Cork True Crime podcast. Oh, yes. and, and I, I was, was fascinated by it. But it, it and it, it sort of got me from one state to the other in the car because it sort of became a companion on that journey.
0: And let's talk about your second love, which is music. You've chosen a couple of artists that I want to ask you about. Let's start with Self Esteem. I'm a huge yeah. fan of hers as well. Tell me why, why you love her music.
1: <sighs> that album... Uh, her album i saw her live and i listened to the album and i started looking at the lyrics and um and i loved her humor i loved that you can hear her accent through her music mm-hmm. and that it had it was it was honest and i felt like she was she was expressing her own lived experience of something in a in a vulnerable way that at, at times felt like she was talking to her younger self when she's like Don't send those long paragraph texts. Stop it. Don't. It it felt like a bit of, she gives herself a pep talk at times. But also, she, you know, the the humor and the self awareness when she says one lyric of saying, like, texting you um, from the mental health talk seems counterproductive. And there is a sort of a, that self awareness and that tongue in cheek quality. She's very free in who she is and in her body and how. I think she seems to have total, total creative control over her own music. Mm. And, you know, this is not someone that was kind of manufactured at the age of 20. This is someone who has been honing her craft as a performer, as a storyteller. And I'm I'm sure she's a brilliant actor as well as she is a musician, as well as she is a writer. So it feels again that that sort of I'm seeing a lot of artists now who are doing lots of different things and combining lots of different styles or different talents and skills, skills into one thing whether it be George the Poet or whether it be self-esteem mm-hmm.
0: yeah the thing that I really love about her music there's that one song where she's talking about violence against women and she barks and that there's, yeah. there's barking Yeah, and there's this thing that came about after that where a bunch of women would kind of talk about on social media like if they are approached by a man on the street or something
1: just bark in their face yeah. and they get so scared because they're like oh my gosh <laughs> she's a lunatic that they run in the opposite yeah. direction. <laughs> I, do, I remember doing my own version of that when I was you know when I was clubbing sort of as a teenager and if I was in the you know I'd often like to go to um, gay clubs because I could dance freely and yeah. feel just for me much safer. And I remember though, when I was in clubs and I, the men would come up to me and they, I, I felt that they were quite adamant or aggressive on the dance floor with me. The thing that, the, the thing that actually, it's so, it's, it feels kind of so crazy uh, that you know women have to yeah. feel unsafe just dancing. But, the, but if I was resilient, res, um, if I was sort of backfooted or try and walk away, I had this real fear that if I offended the guy, that it, that wouldn't make me the, me safe. That would make him angry. Mm. And so there's this, and I feel like you can feel, hear her in the music doing that as well. But if you do something a bit mad, they back down. And so I used to do really ugly, intense dancing at them that that also was totally out of rhythm all of a sudden and almost be like manically into them. And it would last like 10 seconds before they were like gonna back down. She's crazy. And it would be like an arm armor God, that I amazing. had on me.
0: God, I, I, in my head, I'm like, that's such a great tip. Everyone listens. I'm like, no, why so should so, so, we? Why wh- should we be the ones why? that are happy? No, exactly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But it is unfortunately the world we live in. Um, finally, I'm going to ask you about Venice, which is your yeah. third love, which I know you obviously you know visited in the film. So tell me about... Was it your first trip to Venice when you went to do the film? What did you make of the of the area? I mean, it's so beautiful.
1: It's beautiful. It's it, of course, you know, Venice has been filmed once or twice and you know, most famously in Don't Look Now, um, the Nick Road film with Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland, which and, and Venice is so full of these dark alleyways and, and these kind of waterways. It makes it feeling quite a claustrophobic um, place to, to film. It's very atmospheric. Um, so great for a sort of a horror or a thriller genre but what we've done in this movie is kind of it's a love letter to Venice we see it at sunrise and at sunset and from a great height and we've managed to light up the Ducali palace and host the sexiest party inside of it Um, and and really celebrates the that that sort of hedonistic Dionysian kind of um, quality that Venice feels like it has with the you know the history of its own festival and at a time you know when, when it was um, you know my, I love the idea that at the festival it was kind of the one time of the year where regardless of class within Venice all people kind of came together and had these rendezvous but they were masked so an anonymity which meant that people were, they were free from their everyday sort of roles and titles and relationships to each other and you know, so, so it's quite a a decadent, romantic, luscious kind of place. So I've always found it quite mysterious. And I've shot twice there now, there's another film that I did there. And, and then I started going back and spending a bit more time there and starting to, I befriended a, a Venetian family that lives there, who've lived there, their families, they've been there for a thousand years. And you kind of get access to sort of the, actually the underbelly of Venetian life. And it's full of a cast of such exciting, kind of eccentric characters. Um, and that there was a book in particular, Joseph Brodsky's book, Brodsky's book, uh, "Watermark," which is his essay on Venice. Um, it's it's the kind of place where if you are a poet or a writer, it Venice starts to write itself for you. So if you have Jan Morris who did Venice, or you have um, a very famous book called The City of Fallen Angels where a writer goes and he starts to he initially gone to start kind of using Venice as a backdrop to a novel that he wanted to write, but he found the actual truth of the stories he was discovering so interesting that it became a work of nonfiction. And um it it for me it's sort of it's it's weird you go to I've gone to Venice and I've just gone, I feel like I've been here before. It feels deeply creative and mysterious and mercurial and when we filmed, you know, we couldn't You can't fly or drive any equipment in. Every single piece of equipment had to be brought in by boat, which is probably why a lot of things don't get filmed there, you know? So we were so lucky to, again, you know, Mission Impossible, the making of Mission Impossible is reflected in the plot. You know, the plot is a metaphor for the making of. And so to be able to get what we got in Venice um, with the support of so many lovely locals that we met along the way and also, f- so at times, filming during the pandemic when this beautiful city was completely quiet, It uh-huh. um, must have been
0: quite spooky.
1: It was. The, it, Venice has this ability to make the scary actually seem intriguing. Um, and for that, you go down an alleyway, and there might be like loads of layers of ripped posters from various Vivaldi concerts over the years that have been stuck up on the wall. But there's even like a, this kind of rugged beauty. There's almost a stubborn beauty to its grandeur. You know, um, Francesco De Mosto, who lives in Venice, a very famous Venetian, would say, you know, Venice should not exist. It's built on stilts. Not only should it not exist, how is it still here after all this time? It sort of is beautifully stubbornly itself and it refuses to play small. It's so, you know, it's not just sort of a couple of. two-story buildings, it is great, big, grand palazzos built on water. And there's something um, incredibly poetic about it.
0: Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. you. Really nice to chat with you. And the film is out on the tenth of July, so do go and see it. And that is all we've got time for today. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Love Lives, you can catch us on all major podcast platforms. You can also watch us on independent TV, all major connected devices, and all social media platforms. I'll see you soon. Bye.